Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. <clears throat> Dan Abbyhoff here. And the date is, dear, what's the date? I think it's Sunday. Right. I knew that. May 9th, probably. May 9th? Okay. 2021. It's close enough for me. May 9th. And we're back, back home after a week's in uh, California, in uh, Santa Monica, Venice, all kinds of places. Ventura. That's Ventura. We covered a lot of ground. And it's nice in California, although uh, certainly no warmer there where we were than it is here. You know, it's like the song. Yeah. I hate California. It's cold and it's wet. Cold and it's damp. Damp. Yes. That's uh, from uh, the ladies of Tramp. Right. It's got to rhyme with Tramp. Tramp. Okay. Yes. Got it. But uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't damp. This time. It wasn't damp. I don't think it was damp. It was But it was enough, cold. You know something? One of freezing. us one of us got into the ocean every day. I so, got up to my knees. And, and and yet one of us got into the ocean every anyway, day. Anyway, we saw grandchild Pepper. Pepper. Pepper's doing well. She seems to like the climate. And she loves us. Yes, well she does. No surprise. Me particularly. That was my <laughs> sense of it. I mean, she's not saying, but uh, you can read it in her eyes, I think. She's got uh, very expressive eyes. So we, uh, we, we had, had a, a lot time. of fun endowing her with all kinds of uh, abilities that she clearly doesn't have yet. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, with experiences that she'll never remember. So uh, all good. But we know she loved it. Yeah. We know she loved it. We've got the photos. Uh, so this <laughs> is uh, Mother's Day. Let's not forget that. Right. Happy Mother's Day, dear. Thank you. You're and happy Mother's Day to my mother, who's right. uh, who's had her hands full with you, right? But uh, right. that's right. She's been through a lot of Mother's Days and to Noel, and uh, so she's got and, Pepper, yes, who's a handful in her own way. Uh, yeah. So I actually had a baseball Mother's Day story. Anyway, really? Like you don't get that too often. There's an article in MLB.com. I know you don't read that as much as you'd like uh, about a baseball player named Casey Candell. Uh, who played uh, nine years in the majors for the Expos, for Cleveland, for maybe another team besides. Retired 15, 20 years ago, probably. But what's interesting about Casey Candell is his mother uh, was Helen Gallagher. Uh, And Helen Gallagher uh, is the person on whom uh, Gina Davis's character in A League of Her Own was based. Oh, really? It's based on a real person. Ah. As a matter of fact, Helen Gallagher not only played in that league, but her sister Marge Gallagher played. And if you remember the movie, uh-huh. the plot involves both Gina Davis and her sister, mm-hmm. who's in the movie. Recall she gets a big hit at the end. They're opposing each other. That's because it's based on Helen and Marge Gallagher, okay. Casey Candell's mother and his aunt. All right. So and, it's a true story. Right. So he was thinking about his mother... And uh, he was saying, they asked him where, you know, did he get his, where did he get his baseball ability? He said, I got my baseball ability from my father, which is too bad because I got it from my mother. If I had gotten it from my mother, I'd be in the Hall of Fame. But I wasn't that good a hitter. I wasn't as good as she was. Uh, and he goes on and on how good she was. And I, the movie certainly made the point more than we're going to make the point here. Uh, but he said more than anything, and you're talking about what mothers bring to the table, she was extremely competitive. And he said, I think I made it because I was so competitive and I outworked other people. And what I recall is the first time I was playing ball with kids around my age, maybe even older. And I came back because I scraped something and I was crying. And I looked at She said, there's no crying in baseball. Pretty much. She she (laughs) said, you can do one of two things. You can sit here and cry or you can go out there and keep playing. And I think you ought to go out there and keep playing. 
and that was that. So you're right. I didn't think of that line. There was no crying in baseball. So it really is a totally true story. Oh, it, well, <laughs> totally true, but uh, largely true, yeah. How do you like that? Mm-hmm. There's a Mother's Day baseball story for you. So, uh, but these stories were interesting, too, in, in the Wall Street Journal uh, on uh, lessons in endurance. Right. Hard-earned lessons in endurance. And it, it actually um, poses uh, the question, uh, you know, we've been through one heck of a year. Right. And uh, hopefully we're coming out of the worst of it. Will we emerge stronger for having the experience? Yes. That which does not kill me makes me stronger. Yes. We'll um, see. Yeah. And... Uh, the uh, Elizabeth Bernstein, in writing this uh, article, says, "Yeah, well, you know, research su- suggests that that is indeed um, possible. People who endure adversity or trauma, such as illness, accident, death of a loved one, or natural disaster, often feel more confident, resilient, and brave afterwards. Psychologists call this post-traumatic growth. Um, and so there are several stories here." Uh, one uh, about a swimmer, um, you know, an open water swimmer who is uh, caught in a rough uh, sea and uh, is about to get swept out to sea, but manages to turn around and step by step heads back to, is able to get himself back to safety, back to land, simply by focusing on uh, setting his sights on boats towards the water and swimming, you know, one sort of boat at a time. And right. the lesson he takes with him seems to be, you know, um, you take one step at a time. Right. Uh, you know, uh, you, you may, you can't think about A to Z, you think about A to A and a half. Right, because Z seems too impossible. Right. You, you throw in the towel. Which I think is a great lesson. Yeah. And I often do that uh, myself. In my normal workout. Yeah. I'll just sure. say, all right. If I can make it to All this. I have to do is get through the next two minutes. Yeah. And then before you know it, you've gone through 20 minutes. Right. Uh, so, um, but I'm sure it has, you know, sort of, uh, you know, even more helpful in big situations, not just trying to make it through. You liked the one called the rule of thirds. Yes. What was that, that person's sport? Uh Alexi Pappas is a professional long distance runner and ah. Olympian. Yeah, so she's, she was training. She said at one point she wasn't doing well in her training. She thought she was running poorly. She was getting poor results. She was feeling poorly. And she said, The advice that changed my life was uh, from my trainer, who said, No, no, you're following the rule of thirds. Uh, the rule of thirds is when you're training for a you know, substantial, formidable physical goal, a third of the time you're going to feel bad. Uh, a third of the time you're going to feel okay, and a third of the time you're going to feel great. Uh, and that's the way it is, and, and, and that's the way it should be. Because frankly, if you felt great all the time, you're not training hard enough. Right. So when you're feeling badly, that's not a problem. You're right on track. You're just on one of the Well, three see, times. I think that's uh, where she learned the lesson. Yeah. That he said to her, you're on track. Well, that, but that's you're the, doing fine. The real of you're thirds, doing great. The real of thirds allows you. In her description, to feel that she way. doesn't mention feeling good at all in the situation. She just says, just "I felt article. lousy. I was doing terrible." And, and he said, "You're doing exactly what you should do. You should feel terrible. You know, and, feeling uh, terrible is part of the program." Okay, that's I, that's why I like that. But I don't see what the thirds have to do with it. Okay. Um, 
But she does at the end say a nice thing. Hmm. On the good days, you grow your confidence. On the crappy days, you grow your patience, courage, and resilience. Yeah. And stay on your own. Right. To stay it's on your own part of the program. You're yeah. learning when it's going poorly. Yeah. I think maybe that's the best way to make the point. And and there was another one I, I liked, uh, although I've forgotten already which which person it is. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. About this woman who's a dog sweater. Yeah. And she said, you know, she used to stay awake and think about tough scenarios. This woman named uh, Blair something. What's her name? Blair Braverman. Brave, Braverman. Yeah. She, says she used to stay up, you know, at night into the wee hours saying, what if this happens? She'd what obsess about everything that could right. go wrong. Then, well, we all do that. Right. And then she would come up with a solution. And then uh, she finally says, you know something? If I can come up with a solution at three in the morning, I probably can come up with a solution when the bad thing actually happens, when I'm more awake. And, or she put it later. She said, you know something? I said, stop worrying about stuff. Things are going to happen. But future Blair... Is experienced and resourceful. She can handle it. There you go. Future Blair. Yeah. You got to rely on future Blair. So I thought that was useful too. Yeah. I mean, that's one way to look at... Uh, I think that's a very positive way to look at life. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think there's some validity to it too. It's not all a mumbo jumbo. It's not all, you know, just to make you feel good. Um, but yeah, speaking of making you feel good. This <laughs> <laughs> Our favorite subject, poop. This is, it is now officially our most popular subject. Vi- virologists? Virologists. Virologists. Yes. Draw out solid pandemic data from the wastewater drain. You love you, you laughed at solid. Solid data. <laughs> well, wait, let's go. So when we first started talking about this, we were amazed by this with the potential of it. The idea of looking at sewer disposal, looking at waste. And I think it was put in kind of a rougher way. Wastewater. Yeah. But at that point, it was they used to call it sewage. And they say people reviewing sewage can see where, if you're in an area that's likely to have a COVID problem, because the COVID virus shows up in the sewage, or as we might put it, the solid sewage. Uh, But now it's a better word for it. It's called wastewater epidemiology, which is fine with us. But the point is that this has grown and grown as a promising way to track COVID or any other virus. So much so, there's now an official federal department, the CDC, is in business with their wastewater... Uh, National Wastewater Surveillance System. All right, we're in business. Yeah. We're surveying the wastewater. Well, what they decided was a lot a lot, a lot of little groups all over the country yeah. are have been analyzing uh, the wastewater right. and finding out a great deal from it, being able to project yeah. uh, what you, you see evidence of COVID in the waste before you see it uh, in... You know the numbers, the doctors' numbers, and, and the testing, hospitalizations. And yeah. yeah, and uh, so it can in places where you, people aren't going for tests. Uh, you know, you have extra information. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's valuable in many many ways. And it can be precise, even. Yeah, but to do but to continue to do this on a large scale over a great deal of time, uh, they decided is beyond the scope. Of many local entities. So, yeah, the federal so, government. Yeah, the, the federal The screw it up. Yeah, but, but, that's exactly but, it. But, but the, the, it is, when you think about it, it's a brilliantly efficient way to do things. They do have a, a quote in there, which I won't read exactly, but about Germany's experience. Yeah, they, that you could, through the wastewater, you know, get the same information at a much less cost right. than testing millions of Germans. The way they phrase it is, you can do... A million, a million wastewater tests for less than the cost 
of testing Germans for the virus once. Right. You know, and, and that's the thing with testing. Your testing is great. Two days later, let's do it again. So, but the wastewater is not that way. You can do a million of these tests. So anyway, it's brilliant. And uh, so, and I like the way um, they, they quote uh, Dr. Johnson, who's a virologist from the University of Mississippi. And he, you know, uh, a lot of this is interesting yeah. from his point of view and how he felt like an oracle. Because oh, you would get this information, you know, um, and before it would be yeah. come public. Well, you know what the best part is? He, he uses the word oracle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he knew the future just by looking at this, <clears throat> at this wastewater. And, um, and he mentions here on that, you know, that same topic you were talking about with the German, not every population gets tested. Not everyone has access to health care. If there are groups of people that are asymptomatic, they probably aren't getting tested either. So you really aren't getting the full big picture. Whereas for our testing, everybody poops. Yes. So, right. you know. There's no every- holding back, as we say. In the yeah, but the point is, you know, uh, everybody's being tested without even knowing. So Willie Mays, the great baseball player, yeah, had a birthday this week. He turned 90 years old. Oh, really? He's Happy birthday, Willie. Yes. So there was a very nice article in MLB about Willie Mays filled with uh, short interviews with a whole bunch of uh, former and uh, uh, current players. Uh, all saying Willie Mays is the greatest, not all saying, but most saying he's the greatest player of all time. Um, so what do people mean, uh, you know, trying to distill this? When you talk about Willie Mays is the greatest player of all time. And what they really mean, if you break it down, is Willie Mays was the essence of what's called a five-tool player. And if you watch enough baseball, and I know you're increasingly watching baseball, Tamsin, you hear the phrase, he's a five-tool player. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, in many ways, you might say... He's the full package? Yeah, but... but, but what, what are the tools? That's are you the question. Tell me? That, that I am going to tell you, because I knew you would ask. Okay. They are, number one, run the bases. Uh, Does that mean he's fast? Yes. Okay. Two, hit for a high average, get a lot of hits. Yeah. Three, hit for power, right? Okay. Four, field, and five, throw. Okay? Mm-hmm. Those are the five tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not even close. No one had the five tools like Willie Mays. As a matter of fact, I mean, you may know he was a great home run hitter. He had 616 home runs. But um, he he did all these things amazingly well. And the interviews about all these aspects. As a matter of fact, I read a biography of Willie Mays a few years ago in which what they emphasized was when he came up in 1951, uh, the talk for the first few months he was up was about his throwing arm. No one even knew if he could hit. They never saw anybody throw the ball like this, which is crazy when you think about it. How often do you get a chance to throw the ball? But in any event, uh, it was just kind of amazing that he could all do these things as well. And one of the reasons it's hard to do these things that well is not everything lends itself to the same size player. So you see a lot of home run hitters you know, Pete Alonso, your favorite, for example, they're 225 pounds or 230 pounds. They obviously can't run. Mm-hmm. They're probably not going to be able to field. So here's a guy uh, who has to be built differently. And in fact, he was. He was 5'11", 180 pounds. Mm-hmm. Whereas Pete Rose says in one of these interviews, he said, uh, I'm the same size as Willie Mays. I hit 160 home runs. Willie Mays hit 660 home runs. Okay. He had the most powerful forearms and wrists 
and hands imaginable. He was hmm. just different. <clears throat> so that's what makes it so hard to have the five tools. And I'll just only one quick story, very quick, is that Bobby Valentine interviewed about this. Says, you know, he's once doing some uh, an all star game, and they were going to uh, interview the greatest living baseball player before the game. And they had guys there like Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and uh, uh, Willie Mays and Joe DiMaggio. And Bobby Valentine's in a tough situation. He has to go up to Mays and say, Willie, Joe DiMaggio insists that he be introduced to the All-Star Game as the greatest living player. And Mays just laughed. He said, you know something? That's okay. He probably thinks he is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, well, it is Mother's Day. Yes. But of course, Father's Day is not too far away. Well, don't it's, you know it. And you know... The big uh, holiday. Of course, uh, I've been overwhelmed with all the lavish gifts <laughs> for uh, as we celebrate Mother's Day today. Uh, but, you know, it's good to start thinking about gifts for fathers. Traditionally, for fathers... Uh, you see a lot of barbecue right. gear but, uh, for the summer, but aprons because, and uh, spatulas case, and so case, forth. The gift will be for you. You know why? Why? Because you're a five-tool player. A <laughs> five-tool player. <laughs> anyway, um, so the Wall Street Journal doesn't quite see it this way, but they, they are giving a suggestion that I think is uh, good for anybody who likes to cook, uh, likes to grill, and... Um, they start out the article by saying that uh, people love a grilled burger, but it turns out, out of the um, top twenty, let's see, the two hundred top burger places um, that George Motz tracked down for his two thousand eighteen book Hamburger America, mm-hmm. one hundred and eighty two of the top two hundred. Cook the burgers on a griddle, a flat top griddle. Right, a flat not surface, a grill, as opposed to a grill with grill marks and all that stuff. Right. Well, with the well, with um, holes. With, yeah. Right. You know, it's not just the marks. Certainly, the marks give it flavor, but it's the uh, sizzling right. of the fat. Uh, how do they? Um, you know. Grills let fat drip down through the grates, sapping moisture from the meat. Right. So okay. that's why you want a flat surface. That's what their that's their thesis. Okay. And you're and you're buying that thesis. Well, I mean, a lot of people say they they get all the flavor from the, the sort of the fat, the, the juices, yeah. juices exploding right. um, as they're cooking, etc. Whatever. Um, so we're shopping for this. I think we're shopping for this. Okay. So you should get a flat top for your grill. Oh. Now, I, you okay. know, if you go in a restaurant, there's such a cooking, there's such a thing as a cooking flat top. Uh-huh. Okay. It's a, you know, it's a, like a big stove, but it doesn't have burners. It just has a big flat top and you can make all manner of stuff right. on there. And, you know, Zeke has always been a fan of the smash burger. Yes. Where you're cooking the burger on some kind of surface. You need surface. a flat surface for that. You need a flat surface for that. You smash it down. You cook it quickly, etc. Well, obviously, you can do fish on this. You can't do that on, on, on a round. Well, you can do that. all kinds of cool things. You yeah. could caramelize onions. Uh, you know, yeah. like uh, you're at a Benihana. All right. So you and, are... Uh, I can look forward to, for this for Father's Day. I don't know. It's uh, it's tricky finding just the right thing. 
Yeah, but, but you to already, sit on top of you the made grill. a good point. We have is, an insane grill. We inherited is, it. We did not okay but pick it, it, it out it's, ourselves. It, it's quite hot, but you know, you made the point that some of these models are stainless steel, and you say to me, stainless steel is not the way to go. Regular steel. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah, but well, you know, okay. stainless steel is not the great uh, the greatest um, holder and conductor of of heat. heat. Yeah. But on the other hand, there are other design. Uh, aspects of it like where does the fat go yeah and uh, if you are retrofitting your own normal grill Mm -hmm. with one of these things uh, how does it work i mean they they have a um, portable flat top grill that you can buy for five hundred dollars the blackstone culinary pro 28 inch all right so you could get that um, we're talking about putting a, a, a surface on top of a conventional grill, you and I. So uh, that's what we'll do. All right. Um, anyway, yeah. Okay. Retrofit. That'll um, cost about 100 bucks. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. The I'll little understand. griddle. It won't be a secret. We'll, we'll be surprised. We'll see if it works. We'll see if it I works. I don't know. I don't know if we'll really do it'll it. It'll be all over. You it. get excited about all these gadgets, and then you say, well, do I really want a house yeah, just full of gadgets? I think what you were trying to say is you get excited about all these gadgets, but that's fine. I'm all for it. I said, I meant one gets excited oh, I see. I see. about the gadgets. I see. Okay. But maybe you don't really need them all. Yeah. How I... often do we make burgers? Oh, now I'm talking myself out of it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but we do make fish. All right. There are two quick New York stories. Uh, one is about regional theater. Uh, and it's only, it's interesting because it's by Terry Teachout, who's the normal theater reviewer on the journal. So it's a guy who sort of knows the theater in New York. And his point is, that uh, he thinks streaming is going to continue, notwithstanding that we're going to get back into sitting in regular theaters. You know, New York has announced that uh, everything's back uh, to being copacetic in the middle of July, and you've already heard some announcements about Broadway theaters starting their productions in the fall. So he's comfortable saying this? Well, he says that's true, but that's not his point. His point is that notwithstanding that that's going to happen, he what this, the streaming that you've seen... From uh, large theater companies and small all over the country, including regional theaters, he believes will continue. No, that's what I mean. Aren't people afraid to say that because they say if we say that, then the theater won't come back? No, I think they're unrelated. But but uh, really, yeah. But but across the country, people will say, "Well, I can see it. What's it in my living room? Why would I ever go?" Well, he has a different attitude. Okay, his attitude is first of all. There's a quite a questionable proposition that he buys into entirely. I, I don't know that it's wrong. He says it's easy to do effective streaming theater, and it's uh, nearly as effective as regular theater, and it's not too expensive or challenging. I have heard differently, okay? So maybe he's right, and maybe he's not right. Uh, that's number one. Number two, his point is he's not against live theater. But what he's saying is there's a lot of interesting regional theater. There's a lot of theater throughout the country that nobody gets to see or very few people get to see or only people in St. Louis get to see. And he says we would all benefit if we were able to see some of this theater, which is now going to be available in a streaming format. Now, he doesn't speak to whether that's going to undermine the live Broadway audience. I frankly doubt that it will. Mm -hmm. But uh, he sees this as an advance in theater and he makes the point Once we reflexively thought of New York as the unrivaled center of artistic quality in America theater, American theater, and now we won't because it's going to be all spread out. Well, my question is this. You have small theaters. Does that mean they're also going to stream the productions they're performing live? I don't know. 
Or will people begin to specialize in just streaming? He, will they be streaming production he's companies? Not, you know, he's clearly not in the weeds about the challenges of streaming. No, I'm just wondering how we'll... Well, uh, but that's, what, that's an important point because if it's just a matter of setting up some equipment and filming uh, a live performance, then the answer to your question is, no, they're going to be doing live performances and they're going to stream it besides. So they're, so they're getting a double dose of doogie here and it's all good. But on the other hand, if it's technically something that you're better off doing completely differently for the streaming uh, presentation, then your point or your concern is you're going to see less live theater. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. All I can say is, uh, you know, um, I mean, that will be interesting. It will be interesting if it brings attention to uh, different productions in different places. Mm -hmm. Okay. But uh, you'd have... I guess part of his point is they're doing it better. No, not that they're doing it better, but because the, to but the extent we were watching like live performances yeah. um, on the computer yeah. uh, a year ago, they were leaving us totally cold. Yeah, no, no. Well, first of all, okay. Remember, remember the difference between I, I the live performance of Hamilton, yeah. right? The Hamilton streaming and well, we, and, we like uh, that. We Kinky like Boots. That. Hamilton was great, but it yeah. was a huge production. Right. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. Kinky Boots, it was just like somebody's mom was sitting, you well, know, you know something? in the balcony with her Kin- iPhone. Kinky Boots wasn't that good to begin with, honestly. No, no, no. Kinky Boots is a fun show. There's okay. no doubt about it. But it left you cold. Look, look, there are two things going on here. Number one, again, he skims over the issue as to whether a streaming version of a play or musical is going to be effective. He assumes that's true. I think, and I agree with you, I think that's highly questionable. I think the ability to do that is, sub, it, it's not an easy thing to do. And he acts as if it's nothing to it. And he may just not be technical at all and have no idea, okay? <laughs> or else or else people have figured it out. I don't know. But I think that's a huge issue. You pointed that out. But if one gets by that issue, it's, it would be hard to argue with his proposition that there'd be some more varied theater available to people that otherwise wouldn't be available, and that can't be a big thing. That's all he's saying. Uh, you know, there's going to be you're going to see plays you wouldn't actually see. You're going to see revivals of things that don't get revived on Broadway. You know, you're, you're gonna. It's not like they're going to be putting out, uh, you know, a better version of Six in Omaha than the one you're going to see on Broadway. They're not going to have Six, but they're going to have something else. They're going to do, uh, you know, a, a revival of Our Town in a way that you don't see that on Broadway. So that, that's, you know, interesting. Keep your eye on it. The other thing in New York Magazine, which I rarely draw from, they had an article about what it's like to be in office. And you read it and you realize that no one in New York Magazine has ever been in an office. So, uh, But they had one squib that was kind of interesting about uh, an interview with Mike Bloomberg. And Mike Bloomberg, talking about offices, said, look, he was, he was working at Merrill. He came up with a new product, which was a stock quote product, which is, you know, where he built his fortune, frankly. But it was nothing. And uh, he left the stable job. Uh, he rented a tiny midtown office. He had three partners. And uh, well, he, his first thing he did, we went to Alexander's to buy a coffee pot. He knew he needed coffee. And then he decided the way to market his product was to make a bunch of coffee uh, or buy a bunch of coffee from a deli and go into Merrill Lynch headquarters carrying a bunch of cups of coffee and going up to people he didn't know and say, can I talk to you a minute? Would you like a cup of coffee? 
and he's carrying coffee around the Merrill Lynch office. And he's striking up conversations with people. He says, do you want cream? Do you want sugar? Do you want tea? I got tea also. And he's doing this every day. He says, there's no security at Merrill Lynch at that time. So he's meeting so a lot of people. This is 1981. So it's like 40 years ago. Yeah. And he's meeting a lot of folks. And he's telling them about his product while they drink their coffee. And that's how his business got started. And he said, so what happened? One day, the Alexanders across the street went out of business. And now, standing on that very site, is Bloomberg's global headquarters. So there you go. Started with him walking around carrying cups of coffee. That's tough. Well, it tells you a lot. It tells you, you know, when... The guy can sell. Yeah. Well, he knows something about business. It's not like people think of Bloomberg as this incredibly entitled... You know, he only knows about uh, sort of the, uh, the... Being a billionaire. Yeah. He's an expert in being a billionaire. But it turns out he was an expert in not being a billionaire uh, or becoming a billionaire. So it's kind of kind of an amazing story. But you have another story that's kind of interesting, I think. Kind of interesting? I don't know. You haven't told me about it. <laughs> you haven't, you're keeping it secret. Ukraine's burial mounds offer meaning in a heap of history. That's from the New York Times. That's a good, okay. good time So it line. turns out yeah. that uh, all over uh, the Ukraine, yeah. also in general, South Russia, Kazakhstan, this area, there are these mounds, like 20-foot-high mounds, mm-hmm. dot the countryside. Right. And so these are burial mounds that date anywhere from, you know, like... Um, uh, the 7th century uh, to the um, 4th century BCE, mm-hmm. or BC, if you like. And uh, so they have, uh, among other um, the, um, people in them, the Scythians. Scythians. I've always heard of Scythians. I never knew quite what they were. But a nomadic warrior tribe yeah. from this part of Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of... Um, um, southern Russia, part of Asia. Okay, so the Scythians turn out to be pretty interesting in themselves. They actually Herodotus, you know, from fifth century Greece. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, how would I not know uh, that? Describes them uh, in kind of an interesting way. Um, well, one of the things they're famous for is the possible use of marijuana. Really? Okay, so they're famous for they were great archers, yeah. and uh, they were they marijuana was found in their burial sites. Okay, really? and Herodotus describes them as having um, a burial ritual which involved hemp seeds on a very hot on very hot stones, and which would create a smoke. Okay, the Scythians, says Herodotus, transported by the vapor, shout aloud. So they went crazy over marijuana in their burial rituals. Right. Uh, and it seems clear from the way they find these seeds. Sometimes they're found in a, in a fancy little pouch. Right. Um, that uh, they were revered and, you know, again, part of some ritual uh, uh, from centuries and centuries and centuries ago. So this is not, that's not late breaking news. They found the whole marijuana uh um, they've been talking about the marijuana um, uh, connection for a while. What's interesting is though that pi- finally people in um, the Ukraine are getting excited about the mounds. Now, 
as you can imagine, you know, burials, ancient burials often have all kinds of artifacts, uh, you know, fabulous uh, items yeah. in with them, yeah. especially, you know, gold, etc. These are no exception. A lot of these would be looted, right. the items sold or put in museums or whatever. And uh, then the mounds would be flattened uh, or even, you know, or just left or whatever. Uh, but there are people who are saying the mounds themselves are of some importance. And a group has formed called Guardians of the Mounds. All right. This article actually focuses on uh, a particular mound that's interesting that dates back to um, probably prehistoric times in Indo-Iranian Iranian culture. Okay. Then it has a main uh, catacomb about 15 feet down that's later, say, 4th century, okay, Scythians, probably. And then on the very tip top, it had an even later burial, okay, a coffin with a red star on it who turned out to be a local party boss from 1932. Right. Um, uh, there are also um, mounds that were taken over by the Russians and used as... Uh, uh, burial sites uh, during World War II. And there's one with a World War II monument on top of it. But back to the guardians. The guardians of the mound say that um, these are actual, you know, sort of cultural memorials that should be preserved and they give us historically valuable information. And uh, there's even a story about um, uh, one fellow who goes around and, you know, rebounds the mounds. But uh, you can imagine they're all, you know, a lot of the land is being sold for developments or, you know, this, that, and the other thing. They've been careful about the excavating with archaeologists, but not preserving. So this is going to bring attention to these actual, you know, it'd be like if you said, oh, Stonehenge, that's nice. We need the space. Let's just, uh, you know, uh, we've seen it. We can push the stones aside now and and do something else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So um, it's taking this culture seriously. You know, I'm interested about more and more, um, you know, what we're finding out about these uh, cultures. So the Scythians. The Scythians were apparently buddies with the Amazons. I sent movie coming up. They were fierce fighters known for their elaborate funerals. I think a Wonder Woman marijuana episode. Including the vapor. Yeah, well, you can see marijuana, Wonder Woman, it's all coming together for me. They wore Uh, pointy hats. It's too good to be true, really, when you think about it from a Hollywood perspective. I I think we're going to hear more from the Scythians. I think so. I think we have to, you know, if only they preserve their uh, wastewater. Tell you, Herodotus is very excited. It's hard to believe that people knew. You say this was common knowledge about the... Not common to me, but now I know. No, I... well, Herodotus there have been articles. There have been articles. Well, Herodotus was writing about it 100 years ago, right? So it's not like new, new. Right? Not no, new news. no. Hundreds of... Well, one might say told. thousands of years yes, ago. Yes, one might say thousands. Uh, uh, just quickly, uh, there's an obituary fellow named Al Schmidt, who I never heard of, who was a sound engineer, who it turns out uh, worked with everybody who was making an album. And, uh, you know, let's try Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, Diana Krall. They have a story here about him working with Jefferson Airplane. And it turns out that when Jefferson Airplane recorded, and you're going to be shaken by this, uh, they were often on drugs. 
That's right? true. It's absolutely and he true. Still managed to were they scythians were any of them scythians i don't think so i I don't nor do i think the drug was marijuana so there's there's two reasons it's off the track okay they do go quite a bit detail about bob dylan's frank sinatra album and how the two of them worked that out together but that gets a little deep for me um but it's just amazing i don't even know what sound engineers do honestly and i can't say the article explained it but people insist on working with this guy he had a magical what they describe a sixth sense about what made a song great uh, well, his uncle was a um, engineer, wasn't he? I don't recall that, but I'm sure yeah, you're right. He, yeah, he hangs out with his uncle. He starts working in the recording studio when he's yeah. eight years old, yeah. hang, just hanging out with his uncle. He just likes it, yeah. you know. And uh, you know, from there, he's off to the races. Well, but uh, you know, there's a um, great story. Is it near the end? Yeah. So. Um, he was, in 2015, Mr. Schmidt received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, all right? Yeah. Uh, at the unveiling, record producer Don Wass said that the Steve Miller had recently played him several new songs. I listened for a minute, and I said, did Al Schmidt record this? Steve Miller was taken aback. Yeah, how'd you know? And the uh, producer said, because your vocals sounded better than I ever heard them before. Yeah, I don't know why they did. I don't, okay, so I'm here not... is somebody listening to somebody whose uh, music, he, whose sound he knows very, very well. <laughs> and they can tell when Schmidt actually uh, did the recording. Yeah, he said he's renowned for his ability to make subtle but critical changes during a recording session. And they do talk to Diana Krall about it. Apparently he did almost all of her albums. And she said, it's hard to explain, but basically he would come out when I was singing and it seemed uh, wasn't going so great and he would adjust the mic, but frankly, he would put his hand on my shoulder and really adjust me because it was calming me down. And they had this one great line where she said, uh, when she was recording at Capitol Studios uh, and things were going great, Al would say, well, we're not going great. Al would say, Diana, why don't we bring out the Frank Sinatra stool? And he'd bring out the stool and she said, and, you know, I do the best take of my life. <laughs> so it was probably a combination of technology and uh, psychology, It's like the, et cetera. The pitching but, coach is visiting the mound in baseball. It's, yeah. it's, it's similar. Well, you know, uh, who knows what we sound like before Ellie gets done with us. Yes, that's true. Okay. We sound completely different. We actually yeah. have high-pitched nasal voices. Nobody would know that. Uh, or at least I do. Uh, but, you know, sound engineering is everything. So as you know, uh, in December, we uh, lost uh, Rebecca Luker, a uh, wonderful soprano, and uh, we, talked about, we talked about her a bit then. Uh, she actually uh, was diagnosed with uh, ALS mm-hmm. uh, and uh, had a pretty quick uh, demise. So uh, this past week, there was actually a um, fundraiser for, called uh, through Target ALS, uh, which was uh, in a tribute, Becca, A Night of Stories and Song in Memory of Rebecca uh, Luker, uh, performed by all manner of uh, stars. Uh, sad to say we missed it. Mm-hmm. It's a, one of those uh, streaming live. Yeah, we were flying back. Then. Um, so we couldn't, uh, we couldn't see it. But the article also mentions a, um, that uh, a new album has been released by her it's a uh, of her and sally wilford so it's rebecca luker with sally wilford and uh, who's a fellow soprano 
And um, they had uh, put together a an act mm-hmm. uh, that they performed various places. And they had done a concert in September 2019 at Merkin Hall. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it has, uh, you know, it's uh, got all kinds of, uh, I think it's mostly original songs. I mean, it's fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, as some of it is... Uh, Pretty hilarious. One of the funniest songs is called Not Funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really about how, uh, you know, uh, the belter in any musical, Ado Annie, gets all the laughs. Mm-hmm. And the sopranos, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't yeah. you know, and, and why is that? And it's a pretty funny uh, song. And um, I guess it's, I guess it's not uh Totally original material. Now I'm thinking that well, they have the thing I know that it has various, yeah. uh, it yeah. has various. No, but there's a lot of medleys, etc. And I'm not familiar with Sarah Wolf, Sarah Wolford. Mm-hmm. I just am not familiar with her. But uh, anyway, apparently they were best friends, yeah. uh, and they had met together at some reading mm-hmm. in 2005, yeah. and they just it, clicked. It, it, and, and, the, and they're the, very funny together. The they have a great, they, uh, they, they yes. have yeah. a great uh, chemistry right. together. Right. So you can get the album. It's you can listen to the album. It's called All. The the girls mm. but what's also fun is on youtube uh you can see them perform the same i i guess it's a similar uh it's an earlier version of the act yeah. uh at uh, 54 below oh really and it's quite fun okay so uh, rebecca luker and sally wilford all the girls uh you know look for it and look for the youtube uh, songs versions of the songs it's fun to see Okay, so that's uh, that wraps it up for us. Uh, this May, a busy week. Right, and now you're going to go, uh, you and Granger are going to get together and, and cook uh, dinner for the moms. Yeah, we'll let you know how it goes. Right. And believe me, it is very much in question as to how it's going to go. But uh, we're going to give it a shot. All right? Okie dokie. Until then, see you next week. It's Dan Appuhop. And Tamsin Granger. We'll be back. <laughs>